As we began our series on Psach Halacha, we outlined the three central factors that, at least when determining normal halachic decisions, meaning those that are not subject to external pressures, such as those we explored in the last two weeks, Abozik balances three factors. He balances his independent analysis of the primary texts, he analyzes precedent, what previous poskim, what previous halachic authorities have said about the issue at hand, and he analyzes minhag, he analyzes custom in all its many forms. Um, now that we've discussed the basic rationale for psikat halacha the notion that when there are extenuating circumstances, it's legitimate for a posek to rely on a minority position, a less likely position, and the like, we can return to these central factors. Now, as we said, the first factor that a posek analyzes is the canonical sources. What does he understand to be the most likely halachic conclusion based on the primary sugya? Now, this question is actually complicated by a meta-question, which is, what counts as a primary source? We all agree that the source of all of halakha is the Torah, is the Chumash. But, admittedly, while that may be true, the live influence of Chumash, or at least independent analysis of the Chumash, on later halachic literature, is actually subject to Machloket, as we will see. The central text that Poskim turned to, the one that everyone agrees, has not just the status of precedent, but one of a canonical source, meaning a source that every later authority must answer to, is the Talmud Bavli. The Ramam, in his introduction, also writes that he derives halacha from other Tanaitic and Amoraic sources, from the Midrash Halacha, from the Yerushalmi, but each of those is also subject to dispute how much weight should be given to those. The one authority, the one source that is given absolute authority is the Bavli. And if we analyze why it is that the Bavli has this authority, we'll get a little bit of insight into what exactly it means for something to be canonical, for it to be a primary source, but we'll also understand why it is that precedent is given so much weight. Because... The irony, as we highlighted just a moment ago, is that if I asked most people what is the primary source of halacha, they would say the Torah. And in a deep sense, that's true. Even the Bavli, and really all the Tanaitic and Amoraic sources, are trying to understand what God wants as articulated through the Torah. However, in a live sense, most of our halacha is derived from the interpretations of Chazal, specifically those found in the Bavli, of the Chumash. And one could have thought of the Bavli not as a primary source, but really the most binding precedent, the most binding previous authority, which in turn was interpreting the primary source, which is the Torah. And in analyzing how it was and why it is that the Bavli went from being understood as the strongest precedent to being really the primary text that we begin our discussions with, when we're analyzing any halachic, any halachic question, we gain insight into why it is <coughs> that <coughs> that Poskim turned to earlier sources to, to determine the halachic conclusion. The notion that there is even, besides for the Chumash, any source that moves into the realm of 
of primary source, of primary text, um, other than the Chumash, obviously, is actually quite surprising. As the Rambam summarizes in Hilchot Mamrim, Perak Bet, Halach Aleph and Bet, Beidin Gadol Shadarshu Bachad Menamidot, Shadin Kach, Vidanu Din, if you have a court who uses one of the principles of exegesis <coughs> to understand the Torah, and they rule in accordance with the way they understand the law, and the later court emerges, and sees reason to contradict, to uproot the position of the earlier court, it is entitled to rule differently, to uproot the ruling of the previous court, and rule in accordance with what, as, as they see fit. Because the Pasuk says, you shall go to the judge in your days, which means that you're only obligated to listen to the court in your generation. Now from this halacha you see that really, as we noted, at a deep level, the only source that should have the authority of primary, of a primary source, meaning one that everyone is answerable to, is the psukim, or the psukim is the chumash. And in fact, in an ideal world, as the Rambam notes, that was in fact the case. Any court had the right to interpret the Torah in a way that diverged from that of a previous court, and therefore rule differently. Now, in the world that the Rambam describes, in fact, the only primary source is the Torah, and any other authority is merely precedential. It really it merely has weight as it's a previous authority, who's intelligent, who understands the Torah, who has experience, who we respect as having had authority, and they understood the Torah in a certain way, and obviously we must understand what they said, but theoretically a later court can come and can uproot the interpretation and rule differently than that court. The Rambam continues to say that this is only ironically true in the case of biblical law. In the case of rabbinic law, um, in a case when the Sanhedrin, the Beit Din, is acting not as interpreters, but as legislators, not as precedent, but as a primary source, because they are now, they are now introducing new law, in such a case, it's not true that a later court has the right to simply uproot them. And he introduces the principle, which is present several, which is presented several places in Shas, that a court does not have the right to uproot the position of an earlier Beit-Din, until the latter court is greater than the first one in numbers and wisdom. The exact interpretation of that phrase is subject to a machlok and rishonah, which we will not enter into now. Now, from this passage in the Rambam, you see two things. You see that on the one hand, in an ideal world, as we said, when it comes to interpretation of biblical law, the Torah is viewed as the only primary source, and any later interpretation by any authority is mere precedent and can be uprooted, can be argued upon. However, the Batei Din, courts have the right to not act simply as interpreters of an authoritative text, and in fact, in such a case, their authority is weaker because they can be uprooted, they have the ability to act as primary sources because they can legislate. And ironically, 
when rabbis introduce law of their own creation, rabbinic law, in that sense, they are stronger, and there are more limitations in how later but they did can uproot their their rulings. Um, which, as ironic as it is, makes sense at several levels. First of all, it allows for stability in the rabbinic system, because what gives rabbinic law its power is the fact that it that it has staying power, is the fact that it's once it has been legislated, it is hard to uproot. Um, but in the framework that we have been building, it also sort of makes sense that when Beitin are acting merely as authorities interpreting the Torah, so there, their authority cannot be absolute. Because in the end of the day, they are answerable to the biblical text. And if a later court would come and understand the Torah differently, then they would have the right, or even the responsibility, to rule differently. Because in the end of the day, the responsibility is not to the earlier court, but to the Torah that that court was interpreting. If, however, the Beit Din is acting in their legislative role, then the later court is actually answerable to that court as a primary source of authority. Admittedly, that authority may derive from the Torah, but in terms of the specific issue in question, the law was promulgated by that court. And if nothing else, this framing of the Rambam highlights the two first factors that we introduced into our halachic decision-making process. A posseg must both be answerable to his analysis of the primary sources and a previous authority. The, in a theoretical world, the most weight goes to the independent analysis of the primary source to which you're all answerable. Um, but what we also see from the Rambam is that in different cases, a court can act either as an interpreter of the primary of the primary source, meaning the Torah, or as a primary source in and of themselves as legislators. What happened with the acceptance of the Bavli is that exclusively, or almost exclusively, the Bavli came to be viewed not as a combination of interpretations of the Torah, which theoretically could be overturned, just like the ruling of any previous Beit Din, and legislation, which would then have to be gauged by the rule of but it became to view it as a primary source. Um, and this is what we really need to analyze. How did we make this move? Um, besides for the fact that it is surprising in light of the way halacha, as the Raman describes it, used to work, it also, there is sort of a sense in which it's not intuitive that halacha should ever work that way. The Gemara in Baba Basra, Kuflamid, um, what, um, writes as follows, that Amrlu Ravel or Apapa or Avhuna Brady of Yeshua, Kazipiska de Dina Didi, Likamaycha Vechazitu Bepircha. Rava told Rav Papa and Rav Huna that if a legal decision of mine comes before you and you have a question on it, you object to it, Lo tikru adatidu likamai, i itli tam amina lechu, vi lo hadarnabi. If I'm alive, so don't rip it up until you come and ask me. And if I can explain it, then I will. And if not, then I'll retract. Lachar mita, after I die, lo mikra tikruinu, tikruuhu, umigmarnami lo tikmaru minei. Neither tear it up, nor rule in accordance with it. Don't rip it up. Because maybe had I been alive, I would have explained myself. 
But please don't rule in accordance with it. Because a posaic or a judge may only rule in accordance with what his eyes see. Now the Gemara here introduces this, this notion that while precedent is important, and therefore Rava says, never simply throw out my position. Because in the end of the day, I said it, I had some reason for it. If I'm alive, ask me about it. And either I'll, I'll explain myself sufficiently and you'll rule like me or I'll retract if you can prove that I'm wrong. But even after I'm dead, the fact that I said it gives it some weight. He says, don't tear it up because even if you don't understand it, I'm not there to defend it. And maybe I really did have a good reason. But on the other hand, he says, you cannot rule like it. Because as much weight, as much respect as you want to give to precedent, the primary guide that a posek has, that a dayan has, to making halachic decisions is his own interpretation. Now with this in mind, with the Gemara's programmatic statement that the primary rule is how does a posek understand the sugya himself, and that that overrides precedent, even as the Gemara simultaneously tells us that weight must be given to precedent, respect must be given to previous authorities, it becomes even more shocking that with the Bavli, we treat it as a primary text, and we don't just not reject it out of hand, but we in fact accept its conclusions no matter what. So how did we get there? And as I said, understanding how we got to this point helps us understand both the nature of precedent in halacha, as well as what it means to be a primary text. So here several positions have been presented. If you look at the Kesef Mishnah, in Perek Ben Halacha Aleph Vilchot Mamrim, he asks this question and he says, once we know that really the only text we should be answerable to is the Torah, as the Rambam said, the question goes back even farther. We're asking about the Bavli. But in truth, the same phenomenon happened in the way that the Mishnah was treated by the members of the Amoraim, in both the Bavli and the Rushalmi. The Mishnah was taken as their primary text, one that could not be argued on and not merely precedent. So the Kesa Mishnah merely moves the question back. If, as the Rambam says, in an ideal world, the only primary text is the Torah itself, then how is it that it came to be that the Mishnah was treated as a primary text and not merely precedent by the Amoraim? And how is it that we now understand the Bavli to be similarly a primary text? He says, I'll prove it to you. The way you can tell the difference between something which is mere precedent and something which is primary, is can you ask a question based on that text to disprove absolutely a position that contradicts it? And he says if you look at the Gemara, the Gemara takes it as a given that if an Amora's position cannot be defended in any Tanitic position, and there's a Tanitic position that explicitly goes against that position, then the Amora is incorrect, is wrong. But how do we get to that? Because, as the Rambam said, it doesn't make sense. The primary text is supposed to be the Torah, not the Mishnah, not the Gemara. So he says, right? And he says, 
Sorry, he says that, in fact, in order to defend himself, an Amorah will say, I hold like that, Tana, etc. Doesn't the Rambam seem to imply that only the Torah is a primary text, and therefore anyone can argue on any later authority because they're mere precedent. They get respect, as the Gemara and Bava Basra notes, but they don't get the final say because Ein Ladayan El So then he answers, Vevshar Lomar, the Kesa Mishnah introduces really a quite surprising position. He argues that when the Mishnah was finished being written, the later generations accepted never to argue on the Mishnah. And similarly, after the sealing of the Bavli, after the sealing of the sealing of the Gemara, the Chatimat Talmud, we agreed to never challenge it. This theory is actually quite shocking, because what the Kesson Mishnah writes is that in theory, as we said, the only text that gets the status of primary is the Torah. And everything later is at best precedent, a source that must be taken with respect when formulating a halachic position, but it doesn't have the final say. And yet, the Kesson Mishnah writes that it is legitimate halachically, and in fact binding, for people to say that a given body of precedent, they are going to elevate beyond the status of precedent to the status of primary texts. And that's how he argues the Mishnah became primary and the Gemara became primary. And why now the Mishnah and the Gemara are actually used as more primary in an active sense, that is, than the Torah. Because most of our halacha is derived from Chazal's interpretation of the Psukim rather than an independent analysis of the Psukim. Now this position may explain um, may explain the way some later authorities who are precedent-focused view the weight of precedent. Because as we noted, in theory, the most authoritative source should always be a primary text. But in practice, there are many poskim who refuse to rely on their own analysis of the sugya and instead pick moments in history at which precedent has, as it were, become primary. So, for example, the Beit Yosef, in his introduction, writes explicitly that the reason he weighs so much on... Um, on earlier authorities, is the assumption that even if he would understand a sugya differently than, let's say, the Rishonim, he believed that the fact that the Rishonim said something makes it more likely to be true than his own interpretation. And therefore, he does not really interpret the Gemara without the help of Rishonim and rules in accordance with how he understands the majority of the Rishonim. Similarly, Bovadi Yosef, who follows in his footsteps, very rarely, if ever, paskins directly based on a Gemara, and instead rules based on precedent, usually ruling like the Beit Yosef, and in fact his rhetoric does seem to, maybe not as extreme as the Kesev Mishnah, in terms of the Bavli, but does follow a Kesev Mishnah-esque position. 
Because often his rhetoric is that even if a hundred achronim were to argue in the Beit Yosef, would we argue on Rabbi Yosef Karo, one would be obligated to follow Rabbi Yosef Karo. And you follow Rabbi Yosef Karo even if he's a minority, etc. Um, so you see that this possibility of taking a, set, a, a text, a source, that in theory should be merely precedent, should have weight but not the final say, and essentially giving it final say, is something that according to the Kesev Mishnah explains the acceptance of the Bavli, but in less extreme forms is actually present in later postkim who are precedent postkim who give the most weight not to their own analysis of the sugya, but to what previous authorities have said. Now, the interesting thing, beyond what we've said, about this type of position is that it doesn't argue that these earlier sources have been given that authority because they reflect the truth in a better way. They make a procedural claim that we have chosen, admittedly because we think that these previous authorities are usually a good gauge of the truth or the best interpretation of the halakha, we assume that they will give us a good conclusion, but this this is essentially a procedural claim that the earlier precedent, and even that precedent that has been given essentially the status of primary source, it's been given that merely because we chose to, but not because we had to, which is really quite surprising because one would have thought that one has no right to do this. One must always take into account the primary sugya, because it's really to that source that we are answerable. But what the Kesev Mishnah is suggesting is that that is not really true, is that we can determine procedurally, either because we assume that we're not smart enough to interpret the primary text as well as previous authorities, or for any host of reasons, that it is better for us to treat previous authorities as binding than for us to attempt to interpret the sugya, thereby essentially blurring that line between primary source and precedent. Um, if you look in the Kovach Shiurim of Elchanan Wasserman, he quotes a similar position from Reb Chaim. And he writes as follows that he asked once Reb Chaim, and he says, Veheshiv. He asked, Why is the Bavli binding? He says, He said, You're right. In theory, an Amora could disagree with Atana. Then how can it be that we ask these questions from Tanaitic sources on the positions of Amoraim, simply because it's not done, and Amora wouldn't. Had the Amora known the position of the Tana, he would not have argued. And here, Reb Chaim says what we have spelled out from the Kesem Mishnah explicitly. That the reason we challenge the positions of Amoraim from Tanaim is not because the Tanaim were actually, in a deep, real sense, precedent, but because they were treated as such, and therefore the Amoraim chose to not issue positions that were not supported by any Tanaitic source. But again, that was a procedural choice. Now, Reb Chaim, therefore, contends that and this is quite instructive for the way we treat precedent in general, that if you believe 
that something is really just precedent. And procedurally, we treat it as if it's more than that, but it's not really. Then it's not, it's not an absolute rule that we follow that source. And therefore, he writes, Would it be that there would be a case in which an Amora would explicitly disagree with the Tana? Meaning, he moves away from that procedural move. He no longer treats the Tana fully aware of what he's doing. He no longer treats the Tana as a primary source, but rather as mere precedent, and disagrees. Then in theory, one could rule like the Amora against the position of the Mishnah. And then he argues that in fact, that sometimes at least, when you find in the Gemara that Amoraim state about something that it is not a Mishnah, this is not just a description that this is a mistake, perhaps it's a legal claim that we are not ruling like this Mishnah. And he notes that the Ramban supports this as well. The Ramban therefore says that this status is only given not to the Tanaim as a group, but to their positions that were recorded in the Mishnah or in the Brayta. But were a Tanaitic position to be recorded in other types of statements, then in fact the Amoraim would not just in theory be able to argue, but in fact did argue. And he writes that this is similarly recorded by Rabbeinu Yonah. And even though the, the Amoraim do not normally argue with the Tanaim, that's only with regards to those positions <coughs> that are recorded in the Mishnah. Now, even if one does not accept this position, it highlights this framework that we have been setting up. That if something is primary, so then in fact it can never be argued with. Precedent, as he- as weighty as it is, can be argued with. The move to treat something which is really, at a fundamental level, mere precedent as a primary text is powerful and can bind, but it can only bind as long as the later authorities agree to elevate such uh, such positions. But if they don't, then they can, in fact, argue. I will note that it is unclear exactly when, in the case of the Bavli, such a decision uh, would have happened. There are slightly different formulations of this found in different Rishonim. For example, in the Smag, in the Sefer Mitzvot Gadol, in his general introduction to the Lavin, he writes that there seems to have been an actual agreement, a moment at which Sidru Baskamat Kolchach Mehador, that all the wise men of the generation put it together and agreed to it. Um, the Rif. And Erevin seems to similarly hold that it's based on agreement, but without quite this formal moment. Um, This is one position. However, there is an alternative view, which believes that the reason that we rely on the Bavli is because, not because we agreed to, meaning, not because procedurally we decided to elevate its status, but because, in fact, it reflects truth better. Meaning, 
that the decision to treat the Bavli as primary, as a primary source, rather than as very important precedent, is in fact because it is primary, because it reflects truth. This is the position presented by the Chazun Ish. The Chazun Ish, on that same Rambam, in Mamrim Beis Aleph, writes as follows, The generation after the Mishnah saw that their hearts were shrinking. And they knew that the truth was always with the earlier authorities. And once they realized they could never understand the truth as much as the Tanaim, they could never argue. And they would merely study the words of the previous authorities, the Tanaim. And therefore, Amoraic positions that were said in, in, in contradiction to Tanaitic positions are rejected. And therefore, he said the simple interpretation of the Kesem Mishnah, as understood by Reb Chaim, that it was a procedural move, that we accepted the Bavli, but we didn't have to. He said, no, they accepted because they realized it was true. How could we ever rule against the truth? And the truth has already been established. The Chazanish elsewhere explains that the reason he's convinced of this is that there's an enigmatic statement in the first paragraph of Odezarah that writes that the second 2,000 years of the world, the first 2,000 were Tohu, and the second 2,000 were Torah. And there the Chazanish writes that this, these middle 2,000 years, which essentially end around the Chatimah of the Mishnah, or maybe the Chatimah of the Talmud, um, Torah in its was closed in the sense that at that until that point Torah could be created. After that, it could only be interpreted. And he uses this to explain several halachot, which we will return to later in the year. But here we see a second model, not one which believes that the primary set the text is only the Torah and anything later is mere precedent, even if we choose to choose to treat it not that way but rather a claim that, in fact, precedent, what looks like precedent, is in fact primary. Because in the end of the day, what is primary is the truth. And the truth is not limited to that which is found in the Chumash. But in fact, there can be moments in history where interpreters are assumed to contain the truth within their position, positions such that later authorities are bound to their positions to interpret them because the truth is with them. They are, in fact, primary sources of the Word of God. And therefore, you have two very different understandings of how we go from the... From the place in which only the Torah is a primary text and everything later is precedent or is treated as if it's a primary text but in truth is mere precedent to a claim that in fact what binds us is not just the Torah, what binds us is truth and truth can be found in either the Torah or in the binding interpretations of the Mishnah and the Gemara and therefore those are in fact not just treated as primary but are in fact primary. And here, to summarize what we've seen, 
The difference between primary sources and precedent is whether, in an ultimate sense, you think that you are answerable to that text. That which is a primary text, in theory, should bind us because we're answerable to it. Precedent is just important previous positions in interpreting that text. However, one can believe that precedent can reflect the truth so absolutely that it indeed itself becomes not just precedent, but a primary source. Or, procedurally, one can choose to act as if previous authorities are primary out of the conviction that that's the best way to get to the halakhic conclusion. Of course, the latter possibility leaves the possibility open that one can argue with that authority, whereas the, pro- the first model would not. Now, while we've been talking primarily about how later authorities treat the Mishnah and the Gemara, the same models are true of later precedent. Those poskim who are who give more weight to precedent than they do to anything else either do that because they believe that there was a later moment at which procedurally we moved those previous positions into the essential role of primary texts, or alternatively believe that in that in fact they reflect truth better than anything we could ever access. Poskim who believe that and treat later authorities, post-Talmudic authorities, with that type of deference, will almost always rule based on how they understand the weight of halachic tradition, of precedential tradition, to lead. However, poskim who believe that however one understands why the Bavli is binding, that move was only made up to Chatimah Talmud, and after that, everything is just present as, as important as it is, will never quite be ready to rule in accordance with precedent if they can't justify it in terms of their own analysis in the sugya. And that tension, and that question of how you view the relative weight between primary sources and later precedent is one of the central questions that later postkim face. What we'll see next week is that in fact, this absolute authority granted to the Bavli was not agreed upon by all poskim, and even some poskim who did believe that it was binding that sense believed that that was not eternally the case. But we'll return to that next week. Additionally, we will begin to probe what exactly we mean by precedent and how much weight are given to previous authorities.